From the Gert Boyle Studio at OPB, this is Think Out Loud. I'm Dave Miller. Roughly 13,000 years ago, big Ice Age animals like saber-toothed cats and the American lion and mammoths started going extinct in the Los Angeles basin. That was about 1,000 years before their extinction in other parts of North America. To find out why, a team of scientists collaborated on a new study that argues that wildfires due to increased human activity were likely to blame. Edward Davis is the director of the Condon Fossil Collection at the University of Oregon's Museum of Natural and Cultural History. He's also one of the authors of this new study, and he joins us now. Welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. What would the L.A. Basin have been like at the beginning of the period that this study focuses on? Well, it was a lot more like um, a forested ecosystem. So one of the things that we see in the study is a transition from more of a closed canopy sort of woodland ecosystem like you would expect to see in a, um, a, a cooler environment today uh, to the chaparral environment that's typical for wild areas in the LA Basin now. What kinds of animals lived there? Well, um, there were a lot of animals that we still see around today. So I think it's important to recognize that, that most things didn't go extinct, but we did have a number of unusual animals that were um, you know, what people think of when they go visit the La Brea Tar Pits Museum, uh, things like saber-toothed cats, um, um, uh, mammoths, uh, giant ground sloths were present. We used to have camels, and uh, there were even um, the American lion, which is my particular interest in uh, in this study. Um, we'll talk more about the American lion in just a bit. Um, yep. These these are called megafauna in the paper. What's the definition of megafauna? I mean, basically, how big do you have to be to be mega? Yeah, it's a uh, it's one of those things that sounds um, very very technical, but it turns out to be um, <laughs> uh, kind of uh, anthropocentric. So, animals that are bigger than an average human being are considered megafauna, and animals that are smaller than an average human being are considered uh, not to be megafauna. So. Um, so the, the break point is right about um, 100 pounds. I think the average human is considered to be about 150 pounds. So we're technically megafauna. Um, so that's that's sort of to think about like a, a deer would probably be megafauna, but like a coyote would not be. Hmm. So the study mentions that human settlement to the region started increasing around 13,000 years ago. What's the theory in terms of what humans were doing that may have led to more wildfires? Okay, that's a good question. And I'm not an archaeologist, so my specialty is not in human culture and behavior. But um, as far as I understand it, uh, we see that a lot of the um, kind of hunter-gatherer societies use uh, fire as a way to clear and maintain ecosystems in a state that's easier for their uh, for their use. So for example, here in Oregon, we know that uh, the native peoples of Oregon maintained the Willamette Valley as an open habitat using wildfire um, in sort of the, the pre-European colony, colonial times. So, um, so one of the hypotheses would be that people are coming into the LA basin and they're bringing with them a toolkit that includes using fire as a way to maintain open ecosystems that are better for hunting and gathering. Um, another possibility is just that pe people use fire all the time for all kinds of different purposes. And when you have a higher number of people, they're more likely to be fires that get out of control. So when you're looking at something that's happening over thousands of years, 
um, what's a relatively rare event becomes, you know, um, important over the longer time period. So, you know, part of it could have been purposeful fire setting in order to maintain ecosystems uh, in a certain way for cultural practices. But part of it could have also just been more people around, more, more cooking fires, more fires for warmth and night and to keep predators away from the family. And then those fires sometimes get out of control and, and cause uh, wildfires. It's so striking that, I mean, we're talking about 13,000 years ago, but it's so easy just to see the, the modern analogs today of, uh, of literally a campfire that's, that gets out of control or, or a prescribed burn that has a reason but also has other impacts on, on the environment. Exactly. So, so then what's the, what's the next step in this, the, this theory of causation? Why would a mammoth say be more likely to die out because of this increase in fires? So uh, the, the, a lot of the thinking today about the megafaunal extinction in North America has to do with uh, what we call trophic cascades. And um, you, know, you can see a, a more positive version of it with the reintroduction of wolves to the Yellowstone ecosystem. So, uh, you know, we, we as uh, humans had hunted wolves uh, to extirpation. Extirpation is just what we call it when something goes extinct locally, but it's not absolutely extinct, right? Um, and so we reintroduced wolves to Yellowstone, and as a consequence, they changed the behavior of the elk, and that changed the way the trees were growing, and it ended up actually changing the river and making the river uh, become a better habitat for salmon. And so what we might see is that human beings are coming in, fires are increasing, and that changes the availability of certain kinds of plants in the ecosystem that were maybe important for the megafauna. If you think about something like a mammoth, <clears throat> mammoths are uh, grassland specialists, but they you know, are feeding on a certain amount of grass. If the grasses are all burned away, then that produces a period of uh, ex you know, extreme uh, uh, loss for their main resource base, and that could actually have a major effect on them, even if they're not being directly hunted by the humans, which may have also been happening at the same time. And uh, a lot of the megafauna that we see uh, going out are actually carnivores. And so part of what we think is happening is that um, as humans are using resources in the environment, changing the environment with fire, um, the resource base for the carnivores is, is drying up. And so they're going um, locally extinct. They're extirpated because of that loss of prey species, some of which don't actually get extirpated. They're just numbers are rarer. And so if you're a carnivore, and you depend on um, rare but use, you know, rare but big uh, kills, and then those animals become rarer. Then you could go extinct or become extirpated, even if your prey species is not. This takes us to to uh, the the predator that you are the expert on, the North American lion. What yeah. is it, or what should I say? What was it? So then, yeah, it's extinct today, of course, but the North American lion was an important part of the ecosystem 13,000 years ago over a lot of North America. We find its fossils in California and Oregon. We find its fossils in Florida and uh, Texas and Wyoming. And, and so what we see is that this animal uh, from its skeleton and from ancient DNA studies is clearly related to the modern uh, African lion. 
and also to the tigers of Asia. So uh, your listeners may be familiar with this idea, but tigers and lions today are actually closely related, what we call sister species, but they've diverged pretty dramatically in their behavior with lions uh, hunting as a as a pride, which is relatively unusual for cats. Most cats are more like tigers where they hunt by themselves and live solitary lives. And so the North American lion is called that because a lot of people want it to be very lion-like. When you look at reconstructions, you see it standing proudly over the tar pits like an African lion. But one of the things that I'm interested in is understanding whether its behavior was actually more lion-like or more tiger-like. And when we look at the relative abundance of preserved animals at Rancho La Brea and compare it to the rate that animals uh, show up to a kill site in Africa, um, we actually see that the saber-toothed cats at La, at La Brea, the tar pits, um, seem to fill a role more like the African lions do. And the North American lion is actually rarer and looks more like some of the solitary hunting animals in Africa would look. So, um, is it is it fair to say that that the saber toothed cats get more attention and than the North American lions? Is yes, it popularly. I think that's true. Yes, I think people are. <laughs> I mean, the saber toothed cats uh, are much more, um, uh, I guess, appealing to popular culture because they look so much different than right. living cats do today. The North American lion was was bigger than an an African lion or a tiger, but it, it looked like those animals. And so it, it's not going to capture the imagination the same way as a saber-toothed cat does with its very different um, uh, proportions and its big saber-teeth. Yeah. Mm. And so, and you say saber-toothed cat. I, I, I remember growing up hearing about the saber-toothed tiger. Is that just right. an old-fashioned and incorrect way to talk? Yeah, so um, as paleontologists, we try to be very precise with our language, which is why, for example, I call it Rancho La Brea and not the La Brea Tar Pits, um, because La Brea means tar in Spanish. So um, we try to be precise in the language. And so when we're looking at the saber-toothed cat, uh, Smilodon, uh, we see that it's actually not related very closely to the lion and the tiger. And so since the tiger does have a very precise name for that species, we don't want to call it the saber-toothed tiger. We want to call it the saber-toothed cat. So let's go back to this paper that you were one of the, the authors on. What do you see as the most intriguing conclusions of this paper? What, what is going to be the most lasting contribution from it, do you think? Well, I, one of the things I think is it's an exemplar of the way that we're going to be doing paleontology more as we move forward. So I like to say that all extinctions are local. Um, when we think about something like a mass extinction happening over the entire globe, we have to remember that each animal dies for its own reasons in its own spot. Right. Each plant in a mass extinction dies for its own reasons. And so um with the increase in resolution of radiocarbon dates and the improvement and lots of other techniques in looking at fossils, we're starting to be able to look in particular places at what's happening at that moment of extinction and understand those local causes. And all of the local causes sum up to the global effect. So, you know, saber-toothed cats went extinct, but in the LA basin, we can see that saber-toothed cats 
were extirpated because of an increase in fire frequency that caused a, a you know very rapid change in ecosystem. Now it's probably slightly different, or maybe even very different, when we would look at saber-toothed cats in Florida and what might have been causing their extirpation there. And so, and as we start to look across the United States and across the globe with these better tools. We can actually put together what's happening locally at all the different places, and then that'll give us a better picture of how extinction happens at the larger scale, which is one of my my big questions that drives my research. Hmm. Another thing that stands out to me is just, um, I mean, we can look and we need to, to look at anthropogenic climate change. And yes. the basic fact of that, that as a, as a species, we are changing the world in breathtaking and terrible ways and probably yep. the scale of which is is unique it's never happened before in human history but I, I i look at a study like this and it makes me realize that humans have been changing their environments in profound ways i guess for thousands and thousands of years yeah I mean, that's that's another point to remember is that um, we have a lot of technology today that the people 13,000 years ago didn't have, but we're not any smarter today than they were. In fact, there's some research that suggests the average intelligence of people was higher 13,000 years ago. And so, you know, they're still doing the same things that people do. They're trying to protect their families. They're trying to make sure that everyone has plenty of food to eat. They're trying to make sure everyone feels safe at night. And so as people do these things, they take resources from the environment and they change the environment to make it fit them better. This mm -hmm. is what we do. Just briefly, last week I saw an article in New York Times uh, about the Pisco, Pisco Basin, uh, Basin in Peru, where a ton yes. of fascinating fossil and archaeological remains have been found, including yes. what's thought to be the, the heaviest animal known in existence, a manatee-like whale. But the article yes. focused on encroaching development for housing and agriculture in that area. How big an issue is this? Is, is development in places that hold such tantalizing clues about the past? How big a problem is that? I'd say it's a really, um, I, I'd say it's one of the biggest problems facing paleontology today. A lot of concerns in paleontology have to do with the fragile nature of the fossil record that we're using to reconstruct the past and how easy it is to lose information forever. And uh, and so you can see that the places like uh, the United States have been very, you know, there's still a lot to learn. There's still a lot of places to look and find new things in the United States, but we've done a lot of looking here. And so um, a lot of places in the developing world um, are places that haven't had as many eyes on them and we're still finding new fossils that transform our understanding of the past. And Pisco Basin is an example of that, but those countries are often places where the people have, um, you know, re really, more important things to worry about than uh, fossils. They're trying to survive and make their lives. And um, and so there's this, this tension that develops between uh, finding resources for people and protecting resources for fossils. And uh, like in the Pisco Basin, part of what's happening here is that it's not the people who are in uh, dire straits that are creating the problems. There's actually predatory uh, developers who are going in and using the um, the needs of the people as an excuse to 
essentially take land that the government wants protected, that the people want protected. Um, and so, yeah, I'd say that that's a really important problem. Fossils are a limited resource. We can never replace them and we have to work to protect them, but also to protect all of the people that are living in these areas today, too. Edward Davis, thanks very much. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Edward Davis is the director of the Condon Fossil Collection at the University of Oregon's Museum of Natural and Cultural History. Thanks very much for tuning in to Think Out Loud on OPB and KLCC. I'm Dave Miller. Have a great day. Think Out Loud is supported by Steve and Jan Oliva, the Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust, Michael, Kristen, Andrew Kern, and Anna Sanford.